0: This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Well, that was a hell of a welcome. Uh, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you for coming out. My name is Lee Randall. This is Padley Freeman. And today we're going to talk about Life Moves Pretty Fast her love letter to uh, the teen films of the 1980s. Now, mostly you'll know Hadley from her distinguished career with (laughs) The Guardian and other journals, but many of you may have been here a few years ago when we talked about Be Awesome, her guide to modern life for modern ladies, (laughs) which is all of us. (laughs) Um, As I said, the new book is called Life Moves Pretty Fast. It's in honor of one of her favorite films, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and is just one of the teen classics that we'll be talking about as we delve into the life lessons served up in the kind of films <laughs> that Hollywood doesn't make anymore. Afterwards, we'll, after we've had a little natter, you'll have a chance to ask questions and after that, I'll whisk Hedley off, if you give us a one minute head start, into the signing tent next door and I urge you all to buy books and get them personally inscribed. So welcome. (laughs)
2: Thank you. Welcome.
1: Now that I've done all the uh, (laughs) admin. Um, This is your love letter to all the movies that shaped you. Mm. And you point out that these movies are not being made anymore. Mm. So let's get the nitty gritty stuff out of the way first. Why aren't they made anymore? What's changed? Why is Hollywood different?
2: So it's two things in particular. So um, the movies I talk about in the book are things like the teen movies, like obviously Dirty Dancing, Ferris Bueller, Breakfast Club, and then also the more adult movies like When Harry Met Sally, Steel Magnolias, Top Gun, stuff like that. And why aren't movies like that really made these days? And there's two things that happened during the 80s this is this is like the boring stuff i promise we'll do the fun quotes and the power ballads after this bit yeah we're, uh, we're gonna
1: do a duet
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, the first is that the studios in hollywood in the 80s started being bought up by big conglomerates so things like 20th century fox and paramount so they were bought by companies that didn't just focus on movies they were bought by things like water companies electricity companies that just saw them as more money-making things and obviously i'm not saying the 80s was this kind of socialist um, it all, particularly in Hollywood, obviously these, movi- these people wanted to make money. But now it was they were, these studios are being led by people who really didn't know anything about movies. They just saw them as basically like bottled water, like another product to make money. The other thing that happened, the biggest thing that happened, is that in the 80s, a movie that was made in America would get 80% of its takings from America and 20% overseas during the 80s and then specifically, particularly during the 90s and now. That just totally changed, that ratio changed. So now it's 20% of its takings come from America, 80% from overseas, mainly China, a bit of Russia, some a tiny bit India, stuff like that. And you might say on the one hand that's really great that America for once is conscious of countries other than itself, which mm-hmm. is true. But the downside of that is that it means that it doesn't care, it doesn't care about making movies with things like dialogue or plot and stuff and this is why (laughs) you are seeing all the superhero movies because these are movies that don't need to be translated you know you don't need to translate shooting somebody you do need to translate amazing Nora Ephron dialogue so that stuff isn't getting made anymore Um, it also means that you're not getting movies made with specifically American references and I don't mean things like Fourth of July or stuff like that Mm -hmm. I mean things like what John Hughes would do in his films which are all about social class it's all about American working class kids like struggling against the upper Upper class snobby kids, um, or I mean, or even things like Field of Dreams. Like I don't know how many of you have seen Field of Dreams. All of you should see it. I mean, that would never be made today. That's so specifically American. It's basically about the American farm crisis in the '80s, but it's about an American farmer with a baseball field. Like you can't get more American than that. And they would say, well, that's not going to play in China, so we're not going to bother. And obviously, small movies do get made today, but they're made by independents. So, what you have are studios making, you know, X Men 17, and then like the smaller movies, which get very limited releases. You don't have things like Paramount making movies like The Breakfast Club, which is what they were doing in the 80s. So, those are the big changes that happened.
1: So, how hard, how hideously hard was it to decide I've only got this many pages? They've only <laughs> let me write, you know, how many ever pages? I can only pick X number of movies instead of this largest, much larger number of movies, how hard was it to narrate it down? It
2: was. Because it I, I think there's something like, there's 10 or 12 chapters. And so each chapter takes one movie as its main point, And I try to cram in as many other movies as possible into that chapter. But it was really hard, and it was really heartbreaking. And I wanted to do movies not necessarily the obvious movies, but movies that people would have an emotional connection to already, so that would help them get into the chapter to so discuss the point. So to discuss, for example, teens, teen sex in movies today, the obvious one would be Dirty Dancing, because um, most people have seen Dirty Dancing. Um, put it this way, most I've, women I've have seen I've never seen, seen it.
1: What? I, I, That's I, crazy. I'm 56, I've never seen Dirty Dancing. That is crazy. Never, not once. Not I knew, <laughs> see, I, I was saving that revelation, because I knew... It would get, But I've seen the leap. You know, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen bits of it, the bits of it. But
2: It's a lot better than you think. Like It's a genuinely really great No, I haven't avoided film. it. It's yeah.
1: just somehow never happened. So let's so, let's go into that one first. So Dirty you, Dancing. You start with that yeah. and you did a lot of research. You talked to the screenwriter, I correct? mean, that's
2: the other thing I say. Like People and I say, I've written this movie on 80s movies. Everyone's like, what? You just watch loads of 80s movies? And yes, that is totally what I did. <laughs> and that's why I wrote this book. But I also wanted to have in each chapter at least one interview with the people who made the movies. So whether it's the actors or the writers or the directors. Which just was basically an excuse for me to go around and harass Molly Ringwald and Michael J. Fox and Ivan Reitman and these people who I worship and who I cry just thinking about, I'm so in love with them, uh, and make them talk to me. So it was like a legitimate excuse for me to sit around and watch movies and harass Matthew Broderick on the phone. So that's basically why I wrote this book. <laughs>
1: so hard work.
2: Hard work hard work. hard work. hard work. hard work. So yeah, so for Dirty Dancing, I tracked down the writer, Eleanor Bergstein, who is this hilarious... Um, American Jewish woman who's like basically every single one of my aunts and just like tuck, 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 on the phone. She's like, everything you want. And I, I called her and I said, you know, I'm writing this book and I just have this theory that Dirty Dancing is basically just a pro-choice sort of public service announcement wrapped up in a teen film. And she just went s- quiet on the end of the phone and I just thought, oh, you know, I really believe that one. And she went, I have been waiting 30 years for someone to say that to me. (laughs) And I just thought, I I, I knew it. I knew that this this was a thing. I knew that these movies, in the 80s particularly, were really weirdly pro-abortion, particularly the teen films. It's so crazy when you watch 80s teen films, things like, Fast Times at Ridgemont High has an underage girl, she's 15, having to go get an abortion because some guy slept with her and then never spoke to her again and her brother comes and picks her up. And it's just a tiny bit of the movie. It doesn't mean anything more other than the guy who slept with her was a jerk and this girl has a nice relationship with her brother. That's the only thing that whole segment is supposed to illustrate. It's not like she's a terrible person, she's damaged for life, she's gonna become an alcoholic in 20 years time. Like That's it, it's literally that. And fame, I mean, fame, Made way at the beginning of the decade, and there's a white girl in it who gets pregnant by a black student, and she just goes off to get an abortion, and the only thing they ask is, you know, are you paying this by credit card? And that's it. There's like no sense that this is like some serious traumatic event. And when I first started thinking about this, it was like in 2008. I mean, I didn't start writing the book (laughs) obviously in 2008, but I was starting to think about depictions of abortion in movies because I work at the Guardian, and that's kind of what you do there. And. um, And um, there were three movies that came out that year that were very specifically anti-abortion, aimed at young, liberal, often female audiences. In
1: 2008, should we we guess? (laughs) When did Juno come out?
2: Juno. So Juno is number one. Juno was the most obvious and the most, to my mind, offensive. Um, knocked up would be the other one oh, okay. where Catherine Hagel is pregnant at a one night stand and you know, it's fine, she doesn't have to have the bait, like have an abortion. Like, I'm not like here saying every woman has to have abortions. But there's this c- a specific scene in the restaurant when she tells her mother and her mother says get it taken care of, and then you can have a real baby later. And Catherine Hagel kind of reels back with this look of disgust, which is supposed to be how the audience is supposed to react to the suggestion from her mother. And the way the mother frames it is obviously so horrible. So it's making the woman who's endorsing an abortion Mm -hmm. be horrible. Like, you know, there are many reasons a woman would choose not to. Like, suggesting all people pro-choice are horrible is not a good one. Um, And the other one was Waitress which was a smaller indie film, in which, again, it was framed as, like Juno, that anyone who considers an abortion is a terrible thing. Mm. Juno, to me, was the most egregious, most disgusting, with this teenage girl getting pregnant. She goes to have an abortion, and then outside the clinic, a friend from her school goes, you know, your baby has fingernails. And she's like, wow, my baby has fingernails. And then she goes into the clinic, And the clinic is like some nightmare from the Republican Party. Like, it's just like the receptionist is there giving a blowjob to a grape lollipop, and these people there are dirty. The clinic's disgusting. Everyone's kind of like going, and like being like tacky Valley girls. Mm -hmm. And Juno leaves, and she calls up her friend on the cheeseburger phone, the cute cheeseburger phone, and calls up her friend and is like, My baby has fingernails. Friend's like, What? Your baby has fingernails? Like, Yeah, my baby has fingernails. I can't have this baby. And you're like, are you seriously having someone choose? And a
1: woman her? wrote that film. A That's woman so wrote shocking. this film.
2: So then I interviewed this woman, Diablo Cody, yeah. um, for another movie. And you know, I go there like I'm not like going there attacking her. I'm not. I'm not an aggressive interviewer. Like, and I th- I like a lot of the other stuff she's done. And I just said to her, I thought it was kind of weird the way you dealt with the whole abortion issue. I mean, she could have just said, Do you know what? I don't want to have an abortion. I want to have an adoption or something. Like there are many reasons mm. to choose not to. And she said. Any woman who gives me shit for not being feminist enough can just go up my butt. And I was just like, that is not, <laughs> that is not it's an not answer. A, much like, <laughs> of a dialogue. <diet. laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so then I interviewed Ellen Page um, for the book, and she was great. She played Juno, and I said it to her. I said, I just, you know, she's a very Right, you know, She's a very strong feminist. She describes herself as a radical feminist. You know, We mm. had a lot of talk about 60s radical feminism, which was something I was writing about at the time, and you know, getting on great, and I said, you know, I've got to tell you, I just thought it was disgusting in Juneau. I thought the way they did the, the abortion, the, w- the why she chose not to have it, was completely irresponsible and disgusting. And she was a bit like, well, you know, it's because she considers it first, and then and I said, no, that's not why she doesn't have it. She doesn't have it because a teenage protester tells her her baby has fingernails. And Ellen Page, to her enormous credit, it, sort of sat back and went, shit, you're right, it's really bad. And I was like, you know what, she was 16 when she made the movie or whatever, like, what's she going to say? Like, fine. Hmm. But there are messages that movies send, and movie makers do not take any responsibility for them. And when I interviewed Judd Apatow for something else, and I said to him, I just thought, knocked up, I thought the abortion stuff was gross. And he said, if she'd had an abortion, there wouldn't be a movie. And you're like... (laughs) Well, maybe if you write better scripts, I wouldn't be asking these questions. Like, <laughs> all she needs to do is go, you know what? I don't wanna have an abortion. I'm, I, I suddenly feel, I randomly feel as a 22 year old woman who's just gotten a job and slept with some guy whose name I don't know, who I hated, I'm gonna keep this baby. Like, that is not realistic, like, but fine. If you wanna do that, fine, but have better reasoning. Whereas in the 80s, they weren't so freaked out by the, ba- the, by the Bible Belt and they were able to just go have abortions in movies.
1: Well, this brings me to a question that was going to come later, but let's do it now. Why can't people write for women anymore? Hmm. What the hell has happened? Because... You had that really interesting thing about um, insisting that you can't write dialogue for the opposite gender is not being gender sensitive, it's being lazy.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: What has happened? I feel that the world has gone completely retrogressive. Yeah. If that's even a word.
2: Well, it's, it's partly because now these studios have been bought up by the big conglomerates. And they were so focused on money-making. So what they did was they said, we've got to divide audiences into quadrants. So it's like men, women, teenage boys, teenage girls. So which movies get the most quadrants into them? What kind of movie will get at least three of those quadrants? And what they decided was that men don't go see movies for women, but women go see movies for men. So they just like, bye women, bye. So, you know, bye-bye Steel Magnolias, (laughs) bye-bye Terms of Endearment, bye-bye Beaches. Like that whole women's weepy thing, just gone and whenever i say this people always go what about the help and you're like one movie in 20 years mm. does not a genre make um and also the help i don't know how many of you saw it i hope not too many um <laughs> like the women in that were all under 35 like you look at steel magnolias which all of you should see all you men should see like everybody should, it's so funny like the women there are all like over 55 and You know, I would rather see a movie with Shirley MacLaine um, and Daryl Hannah and Dolly Parton and Sally Field than definitely X-Men 7. Mm. Like, it's so obvious to me. Um, But they're just like, nope, only women will see that, so it's not enough quadrants, so we won't do it.
1: Which also kind of tangentially, in a wobbly way, brings me to the whole, uh, all the John Hughes movies, where I have this thing Mm. now... Where you know all those lovely characters that Molly played, um, who were so quirky and who got to be fully clothed yeah. at all times. <laughs> like no. I have, when did pop stars stop being allowed? Female pop stars. When did they stop being allowed to actually wear trousers? No. At all. I know. Much less. Remember in the eighties, even Madonna. God bless her. She might have been wearing a bra, but she had like fifteen skirts on and five hats so cool. and a few ribbons and. There was all kinds of stuff on her body.
2: because she was styling herself too. It yeah. was like pre stylist So when you look at those John Hughes films, those kids are wearing their clothes. Yeah. That's what's kind of Except so about it. Except for cool the one dress. The, the hideous abortion, the, the horrible uh, the hideous abortion prom dress, of a the dress. The hideous yeah. prom yeah. dress in Pretty and Pink. Um, but otherwise, those kids are wearing their clothes. They're wearing their clothes in Breakfast Club. Like They're dressed like normal kids. But then the 90s happened, and it was really two things that changed everything. And I love both these things, and I'm sorry to blame them, but Clueless and Beverly Hills 90210, when suddenly teenagers didn't look like teenagers, they looked like models. And they were dressing in very much skimpier outfits, and they were much skinnier. Mm. And they just got skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And it's amazing if you compare the, the cast of the original 90210, who looked already pretty thin to those of us who were watching it in the early 90s, to the new 90210, which is now, which is in the you know, 21st century. I mean, they are like literally, it's a different species. They're like half the size. These, it's just actresses get smaller and smaller, I and mean, you don't really notice it you look at the 80s like you look at molly ringwald now and i spoke to a couple of wardrobe people out in hollywood about molly ringwald and they were like there is just no way she'd get a movie now like no way
1: but i've interviewed her she is so thin
2: yeah i know but she's
1: a slender beautiful
2: woman but slender but like when you meet actresses in it like i interview actresses like they look unbelievable now when you Mm. go meet an actress in the flesh a young actress You're just like, why aren't you in hospital? Like, it's so absurd. Whereas Molly Ringwald, like, she would have been thinner than me in high school, Mm. but it's still not, thin. it's not Hollywood thin, you know? Is this
1: that ridiculous, the camera
2: adds 10 pounds bullshit? Yeah, or or just that they all have to be models. That's what actresses are now, they're (coughs) models. Um, They're the ones who sell dresses on the red carpet. They're the ones who are on the covers of Vogue, which is a totally different attitude to what you see in John Hughes films, where he wanted them to just be real teenagers.
1: Does nobody remember those great women's movies of the 40s, you know? Betty Davis and, jo- I mean, chewing the scenery and being fabulous and bringing the money and coining it.
2: I know, but that's the thing. They, they make these movies, so like Bridesmaids, for example, was, mm-hmm. was Judd Apatow's most lucrative film. But the message they take from that is mm-hmm. that's a one-off. Yeah. Whereas if there's a, if there's a movie with women that doesn't make a lot of movies, like the new Ghostbusters, everyone's like, well, that's it for women. Whereas all the biggest film flops ever in Hollywood have starred men have just starred men. And no one ever goes, bye-bye men. I mean, you just kind of take a really obvious example. I mean, it's this way in every field. Like, okay, let's look at the Olympics, okay? So I'm sure all of you have heard this story about Ryan Lochte, the ridiculous American swimmer, right? Now, imagine if that had been a black guy, or imagine if that had been a woman who lied about being attacked. It would just be like, women, can't trust them. Black guys, can't trust them. But this guy, it's like, bros will be bros bros will be bros <clears throat> I mean if, with white guys it, there's no failure like if, with movies there's no failure but with women you get one chance and mm-hmm. if, if that doesn't work like with the female ghostbusters it's like told you they can't do it
1: <laughs> and God forbid they should actually start with a fresh screenplay and a brand new premise. Well, oh,
2: the other thing is that now because they spend so much energy promoting movies around the world, like to now market a movie costs like almost a billion dollars. It's insane Which how much more it costs. Which
1: is more than the movie costs.
2: Which is more than the movie. So they only make movies that are surefire things. So they're not going to risk a Beaches style thing. Like that just, it's too yeah. risky. But a franchise, something that's already got movies before or a remake. That's like at least it's got history. It's got legacy. You know, it's got name recognition, Mm. and people don't want to see men. Won't see a movie with a woman on the poster, and I do think this is often true of men. Even the nice guys, they'll be like, "It's for women." Um, Did they
1: not go see uh, what's her name, Laura Croft?
2: (laughs) She's she's sexy, and she's and she's a game, so that's Uh. acceptable. But you know, if there's so, it's like
1: not real on several levels. But you know, Lovey <laughs> La
2: on Rose. I mean, I would like yeah. to see the audience demographic breakdown for that. But even even if that was even if that was a success, mm-hmm. it's still like that's a one-off. That's a one-off.
1: I'm <laughs> oh, not too depressed to go on. <laughs> I'm just going to hand you the. You can. Um, how how much of a factor is the fact that our my country, America, has mm. become? more and more and more conservative
2: it is a problem and i spoke to this really interesting american producer out there about it linda Obst, who's worked on a lot of women's Uh, films and worked with people like nora efron and all these people and she said studios are terrified of um, this kind of activism that they get from the Bible Belt. I mean, I, when you're over here, the, you know, the image that people get in, of America, well, now, of course, it's terrible because of Donald <laughs> Trump, but in the main, it's usually from New York and Los Angeles, whereas, and that's actually what, those people who live in those cities, I speak as someone who grew up in New York and has spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, like, that's all you're thinking about, too, in America. But the fact is, the majority of America is the middle, and it's a very conservative part of America as well, and these people really do lead campaigns, and they do affect the uh, MPAA, which chooses the ratings. And they do pillory these people to... So for example, here's a great comparison. So I spoke to the ratings boards in both America and Britain, and they all said the same thing, which is that America is extremely tough on sex when it comes to movie ratings, very relaxed about violence, and here it's exactly the other way around which is why it's kind of so nice to be here. <laughs> uh, so there was this one movie, the title of which I can't even remember because I didn't bother saying it, um, about Charles Dickens' mistress that came out like three oh, years was ago. Well,
1: the book was The Invisible Woman. It's,
2: maybe that was The Invisible Woman with Felicity, uh, that young yeah. actress. So she I read the book. Ray Fiennes, I think, yeah. played Dickens. And um, in America, that was basically the equivalent of like an 18 because there was a bit of sex in it. And here, that was PG because, like, Charles Dickens, a bit risky for Americans. Um, so that kind of sums up the different attitudes, and it probably has gotten worse. America has gotten much more conservative, despite seeming, in some ways, to become progressively more liberal.
1: No, it doesn't seem it, more liberal to me at all. <laughs> so, and that's um, the makeover as motif. Oh, the worst. Oh, look, she's shivering. She's horrified. Uh,
2: I find cool. it so depressing. Disgust. So... Everyone, I mean, it's just like, I'm going to talk to the women here, guys. Sorry to do some gender stereotyping. But most women love a makeover in a film. Like, whether it's Pretty Woman or Breakfast Club or She's All That and all that kind of stuff. I, I... hate it. I hate <clears throat> the message that women need to look more conventionally attractive and get their tits out and wear shorter skirts in order to be deemed acceptable human beings. And that is what it always is, the makeover. And that's why I, unlike every other John Hughes fan, am not such a big fan of The Breakfast Club, because I hate Ally Sheedy's makeover at the end of it. I find it so depressing that he did that. The whole thing of John Hughes is celebrating the weird kids, and in that he, ha- he gives the weird gothy girl a makeover. Mm-hmm. Um... And I really started to think about the depiction of women in movies today um, when I rewatched She's All That, which is from 1999, which I'm sure some of you remember with Freddie Prinze Jr. And the message of that movie was that the girl, Lainey Boggs, Who is weird and nerdy at the beginning has to become conventionally more attractive in order to be acceptable. This is not a new thing. You see it in Greece too. Like this is like Mm. a very old movie trope that a woman needs to, you know, wear a tighter dress, lower cut, blah de blah. But I was thinking about the movies I grew up watching and how they sent completely the opposite message. And the most obvious ones being things like Pretty in Pink. So Pretty in Pink, which I'm sure uh, I hope all of you have seen, most of you have seen. Molly Ringwald refuses to have a makeover, even though she's dating this rich, gorgeous guy who she wants so badly, and of course she does, because it's Andrew McCartney. Uh, Literally the cutest boy ever born. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But she refused to, and even when he tells her, do you want to go home and change for our date? And she's like, I already have. Like, she doesn't say, she doesn't do this thing of like, Oh my God, you're right, I'm so wrong. Whereas in She's All That, this girl's literally like having to pluck her eyebrows out in order to be acceptable for this guy. And I looked at the movies today, and the big teen movies today would be Twilight. And in that, Kristen Stewart has to change species to be with her boyfriend. And that's seen as proof of her love. Like She literally changes species. And if being the whole vampire metaphor is all supposed to be about AIDS now and everything, so she literally gets AIDS, like she changes into a vampire. Like that's what's so creepy about it. The whole thing of the blood is so toxic to teenagers. Mm. It's basically saying, have unprotected sex and take what happens. And she even gets eaten from within by her vampire baby. But this is all seen as proof of her love. Now this is so weird, and it's the same with other stuff. Look at Fifty Shades of Grey.
1: Like, no, don't look at what it. What the <laughs> hell
2: is that? What the hell is that? Where she, like, she puts up with having sadomasochistic sex, which she doesn't really like and doesn't really want, in order to have her rich boyfriend. Like, what the hell is this message? Now, that's not really aimed at teenagers, a bit. Teenagers can read it if they want. It's certainly aimed at 20-something, 30-something women. That is a totally sick message to send. Whereas you look at movies in the 80s, I mean, one of the things I love about them is kind of what we said earlier, is the women just look like schlubs. The women aren't all blow-dried. They're wearing these weird big clothes Mm. that have nothing to do with 80s fashion. It's like Cher in Moonstruck kind of looks ridiculous. Like, she's kind of like wearing these kind of big ugly coats. And that massive perm. Massive perm. She gets her hair dyed for the date. I will grant that. But she does it for herself. Like, he says to her, like, You know, he was totally into her before, Nicolas Cage. She does this, she wants to get her hair done, she's finally coming out of her widowhood, it's fine. But like, you know, Sally, and when Harry met Sally, like what the hell is she wearing? She's like wearing jodhpurs or something when they walk in the park, it's so bizarre. And that's amazing. Like these women aren't trying to look conventionally attractive for men. Whereas now, like we say, I mean, they all look like models. They all look Mm. like models. Julia Moore, whatever age, Kristen Stewart, they all look like models on screen. There's none of that I'm just dressing for myself attitude that you get in 80s movies. Bring it back. I know, I know. It's it's like, kind of like that horse has bolted. There's like no way of it coming back. It would look so weird. To see that on screen now, like I find it weird almost when I watch it, and I, I watch these movies all the time. It's amazing seeing Meg Ryan in When Harry Met Sally. And you think?
1: Well, first of all, her face is completely
2: different. Her face is totally different. It's her it's very original very face. It's very sad,
1: <laughs> which I much preferred.
2: Uh, or like the women in Tootsie, like they're all just. I just watched
1: it the other oh. day. Had
2: you never seen it? You've seen No, I've oh, no, seen okay. it,
1: but it came up on movie. Oh, so, so I, I thought, oh, Charing Hadley's soon. Better <laughs> rewatch Tootsie. And I was actually appalled by certain elements I know, of it. I but know. there were, you're right. The, you know. the
2: women just look like normal women yeah. that you would see on the street.
1: I mean, the clothes that Jessica Lange, who's supposed to be the drop-dead hot, hot, hot one, wears, she wears, remember in the 80s, we had those um, big, the big box pleats up at the top of the trousers, and they kind of ballooned out, and then they were pegged at, the, I had hundreds of them. No. <laughs> She's, you know, sh- and you think that would she never, never wear that. never happened. Now, never happened. Now, never happen. now First of all, it's all about she got. Lo- way too much fabric on for now. Yeah, and
2: now it's all about looking as thin and sexy as possible.
1: Yeah. yeah. Although there are those scenes where Gina Davis is. So skinny she's, when she's, <laughs> she's when getting she's in interested. the dressing room and she's wearing her <laughs> bra and knickers. And,
2: but that scene is kind of ridiculous. Yes, like it is. Like it, it's held up as ridiculous. This isn't the norm. Yeah. Women aren't walking around in their yeah. bra and underwear. Like that's the whole thing. When Dustin Hoffman goes in, he's like, "What the hell is going on?" Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and but, but his character, I hadn't remembered how reprehensible he was in the beginning of the oh, film. Oh, terrible! Yeah. Should we talk about Tootsie? I yeah. love Tootsie so well, I've already so started, much. so join um, in. <laughs> so
2: I love Tootsie so much. Now this is also a movie that wouldn't get made today. It, I mean. I mean, first of all, it'd be think? seen as freaking crazy. I mean, mm. like this—it yeah, would be seen as a bit, a bit on the edge. I'd say, mm. like this man dressing up as a woman in order to get a job, but. The thing I love about it is that she's so feminist in it. And this yes. is coming at the beginning of the 80s when it's supposed to be the backlash against the, the second wave. And the reason that this character becomes such a celebrity is because she's so feminist. And telling all the women in the film to, you know, zap sexual harassers with, mm. you know, with, in the Badoobies, as she puts it. Yeah. Um, and all that kind of stuff. But what's sad about it is that they chicken out and they have her get together with, with Jessica Lange instead yes. of Terry Gar. Terry the Gar. It, it should be Terry Gar. It should be Terry Gar. And, everyone. Yeah. and then also it even worse is Jessica Lange won the Oscar that year instead of Terry Gar. So poor Terry yeah. Gar got screwed Over twice, but it's um, it's a I find it a very moving movie because, Mm -hmm. well, I Dustin Hoffman so clearly feels this empathy with Dorothy, the female character, and he gave this interview um, a couple years ago to the American Film Association about how he knew he had to play this film, uh, play this character, because when he saw what he looked like when he was made up, he realized that he wasn't pretty, and he always just assumed mm. he'd be a pretty woman, and that if he bumped into this woman at a party, he wouldn't even give her the time of day, he wouldn't yeah. even talk to her. And he suddenly realized that it's slightly harder for women than men, <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that Dustin Hoffman as a woman wouldn't have been seen as the sex symbol as Dustin Hoffman the man was able to get away with. That's yeah. just, just the truth. And so he wanted to do it to, like, for these women who get unfairly overlooked for not looking like Jessica Lange.
1: Which is all lovely, but.
2: It should have ended I've, then with a go?
1: I've gotten just so riled up that I found that I was like. Well, fundamentally, this is mansplaining. This is a man explaining to them how to be feminist, and I'm now I'm pissed off about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I've obviously gone right around some sort of <laughs> point of no return with this. It's <laughs> mainly
2: just so funny. I mean, yeah. when have we seen a film with that kind of witty dialogue? Like, that's up there with, you know, 80s you know Woody Allen's, which for me is my favorite era of Woody Allen. Um, mm-hmm. 80s Nora Ephron, also my favorite era well, of Nora she, yes. Ephron. Like, that kind of sharp dialogue yeah. that just bounces that's not um, sort of assuming the audiences are semi-literate or that everything needs to ex- be explained yes. or everything needs to be hammered home with that sort of on-the-nose song playing in the background. Yeah. It's so smart. It just assumes audiences are smart, and that's what you don't really get from movies today.
1: No. Why don't we talk about your favorite movie of all time? Okay. Ferris Bueller. <laughs> Why of all? I mean, of all the movies. She, oh. <laughs>
2: Um, I love this movie so much. It was the first live action film I saw that wasn't an MGM musical because my mother worked for Sesame Street and that's all I was allowed to watch until I was like nine years old or something eight years old and then I was allowed to go to the video store and I rented to Ferris Bueller's Day Off and it was just this whole new world to me and I watched it every day when I got home from school for more than a year and (laughs) copied out the script in my notebook which I still have at home in my pencil Um, and I can still recite the whole thing and I love it so much see I can
1: recite The Wizard of Oz (laughs) (coughs) we could have a competition
2: (laughs) Um, and it's such a weird movie and it's such a I find it such a profoundly moving movie for John Hughes as well.
1: In the book, you talk about it, how it's a movie about class, yeah, about social class. So why, what, what particularly? Because so obviously, Ferris and his even what he's he's well rich, off, yeah, his even wealthier friend Cameron with the car, yeah, with the cars, um, the car
2: museum. So John Hughes grew up in a it was grew up in a lower middle class family <laughs> in an upper middle class suburb outside Chicago. And he was extremely conscious of this class difference. And when you watch his other movies, particularly Sixteen Candles, Pretty and Pink, mainly Some Kind of Wonderful, which m- most people didn't see in the end, um, it's all about class and how the working class kids are overlooked and how they can never be cool. Uh, it's always the rich kids who are cool, but mean. And Ferris Bueller, he wrote right after Pretty and Pink. And what's interesting about it is that Ferris is basically the same as the character Ducky. In Pretty and Pink, I mean, it's even played by characters who look the same. They're into the same kind of music. They're both geeky. They're, you know, they talk to the camera. They do the breaking of the fourth wall thing, all that sort of stuff. And um, and it's, I feel that this is John Hughes's fantasy of how his childhood could have been if he'd just been rich. You know, he's popular. He has the prettiest girl. The whole town is obsessed with him. Um, Uh, it's very, very touching. And he's talked a lot about how much of his life is in Ferris, much more than in his other movies. So for example, when the kids skip school and they go to the French restaurant Shakey, that is a reference to Shakey's fast food restaurant in Mm. Chicago, which he used to go to and he used to skip school with his best friend, but it was just a hamburger joint. So now they've made it this fancy French restaurant. And the scene at the Chicago Institute of Art, which is my favorite movie scene, of all time when they're walking through and it's the instrumental music he used to go hide there when he wasn't enjoying school when he was being bullied and he'd just sit there and look at the paintings so this was his way of thanking the school and he did actually marry his high school girlfriend and was with her till the day he died so it's also a little bit about that love story so when Sloan says at the end he's going to marry me that's a kind of thing for, for John Hughes and his wife so it's a very touching film and what's also touching it's, it's, it's him starting to say goodbye to teen movies mm-hmm. because both Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall, who were his female and male muses and who were in all his other movies, turned it down. And they said they wanted to, to go off and do other things, which they didn't really manage to do, hmm. which is quite interesting. And you um, and can see this film is changing. like It's much weirder. It's not a conventional teen film on any level. It's, it's surreal. It, it's quite zany. It's quite zany, and it's not... It doesn't really have a plot. I Mm. mean, it's just this one day with these kids who skip school and go to a museum. Like, it doesn't even make any sense. It's so bonkers. And also this poor principal who just wants them to go to school is like seen as this terrible (laughs) villain. (laughs) Like It's like, that doesn't make sense either. Like none of it makes any sense, let alone the fact that Ferris being sick from school is in like the local newspaper and like, you know, sky written and they're on the TV. Like none of it makes sense. And there are a lot of theories on the web as ever about this and saying that it's all it's Cameron's fantasy. Like Ferris is a figment of Cameron's imagination. And I don't think that. I mean, you can't say that this is told by Cameron because obviously the movie is more about Cameron than Ferris. Yeah. Like, Ferris doesn't change. Ferris is just this empty vessel who's, like, the same at the end as he is at the beginning. Whereas it's Cameron who goes through the emotional change. But I think it's more just John Hughes' fantasy about what teen life could have been like in yeah. these big houses that he's always using in his movies and Home Alone or whatever. He's always using these big houses that he didn't grow up in and that he had no connection to. Yeah. So I find, I think it's very sweet.
1: Well, now you made me want to cry. I just yeah.
2: it's, a, it's a very, I find it's a very movie movie. And it's so original. It's so nuts the way Ferris keeps talking to the camera. Yeah. And it's like, you know, if you want to get out of school, you lick your palms. And like doing this whole talking and singing in the shower. Um, and all the characters are so interesting. I, I would watch a movie about Grace, the principal secretary. Mm-hmm. You know, I would watch a movie about the guys in the garage who steal the car. Yeah. Like, all of it. i ever watch a movie about his parents. Like, all of it's so funny. You want to know about all of them. And I always feel like that's what you need with novels. Like, when you're reading a novel, you want a novel about all the other characters. Yeah. That's how you know you're reading a good novel. It's the same with Ferris Bueller. And what's also so funny is everyone who made that movie got together with each other. So, my, Matthew Broderick got together with Jennifer, Jennifer Gray, Gray who played yeah. his sister, and then the parents got together and got married. Really? So it's like all these other weird family connections going on. Um, and meanwhile, the girl who was playing Sloan was like throwing herself at Matthew Broderick, and he just wasn't interested. So it's like all that was going on behind the scenes. So I, I, it's, everything about it is just so adorable.
1: Yeah. You also. Um You devote a lot of time in the book to talking about Eddie Murphy. Mm. And I can't say, I can't even picture Eddie Murphy without a voice in my head going, I'm Gumby, damn it. (laughs) Which is really, really wrong. But um, I thought that what you had to say about him was really sort of profound. Because (laughs) you, you put him back into the context that a lot of us who have maybe seen him, what he's done lately. Yeah, yeah or heard gossip about him, have forgotten about how... I mean, obviously, there were people before him. There were Richard Pryor and, back in the day, Bill Cosby and people who were actually breaking the Mm -hmm. doors down. But can you talk a bit about Eddie's contribution and why it was so fundamentally groundbreaking?
2: So, Eddie Murphy is, like, my ultimate... Celebrity, not crush exactly, just like who I worship more than any. And when I say this now, people just look at me like I'm insane because they just think of him from Norbit Mm. or the the Fat Professor movies, all that kind of stuff. But he to me is just the most amazing screen presence. And you don't really appreciate how extraordinary extraordinary his accomplishment was unless you go back to his really early movies. (laughs) So the first movie he did was 48 Hours, which he did with Nick Nolte. And that was the original buddy cop film. And Nick Nolte plays this kind of gruff, divorced, you know, cop, the whole cliche that we get now all the time, sort of, sort of alcoholic. Gruff but great. But (laughs) as part of his gruff but greatness, he keeps calling Eddie Murphy, who he's teamed up with, um, names like Spook and Watermelon and The N Word and all these other words that I, as a guardian writer, am not allowed to say. (laughs) And this is seen as kind of a bit on the line, but kind of funny. Like, it's a, it's a bit online, but it's, it's funny. Like, this mm-hmm. is Nick Nolte. He's the good guy in this movie. So you're not supposed to hate him. He's not, like, the bad racist. He's the good guy. He's the protagonist. And so this is the Hollywood Eddie Murphy was in. And Eddie Murphy replaced Richard Pryor in that film, who had been the big black star before him. And Richard Pryor was, as I'm sure all of you know who've seen his stand-up, like incredibly talented, mm. but was never able to blake, break out of the black guy role. Like he was always the black guy and was treated that way. And in fact, in the 80s, he made the unbelievable movie, which Jackie Gleason called The Toy, in which he literally plays a black guy who a rich white guy buys for his child as a toy. Like, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating this. Like that's literally the movie. He's a toy and also AKA a slave. So that's Richard Pryor, who's like the biggest black actor in the world. So Eddie Murphy comes along and he is so good that he is able to break out of that. Like the whole cliché about if you're black in America or, to be honest, any Western country, you have to be ten times better than the white guy in order to equal them. Like Eddie Murphy was a million times better. So he became the biggest star in the decade. Like only, only, um, oh my God, Harrison Ford earned more money. And that's just because of Indiana Jones and Star Wars and stuff like. Eddie Murphy was the biggest star. and he's coming out in a Hollywood where it's seen okay for people to call black guys watermelon. So then after that, he's in Trading Places, which is then when he really blows up. And even in Trading Places, which is a movie I bow down and worship to, mm-hmm. he's still playing the black guy. Like, that character is the black guy. And there's even a scene where Dan Aykroyd blacks up in it and is chatting with Eddie Murphy, with, Eddie Mur- with Dan Aykroyd blacked up and doing a Rasta accent. <laughs> and watching it now, you're just like, please, Dan Aykroyd, I love you, stop it. But that was seen as fine. That was seen as fine then. The next fake was the biggest transition for him, which is that he's cast in Beverly Hills Cop. Now, Beverly Hills Cop, that's not black guy. That role (coughs) was actually written, unbelievably, for Mickey Rourke, and then passed on Mickey Rourke (coughs) to Sylvester Stallone, (laughs) and then Sylvester Stallone went off and made Cobra or something, or whatever the heck he did. (coughs) And the producers, um, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, to their enormous credit, like no one else had done this, which is like, let's just cast (coughs) a black actor in this role that's not written for a black guy. And they did, and it was like the biggest success of the decade. And from then on, he didn't really have to play the black guy anymore until he then did Coming to America, at which point he was so huge that Mm. he could do whatever he wanted. And here he made a movie that has an entirely black cast that was an enormous success. And there's been no repeat of that accomplishment since. And nobody ever notices this about Coming to America. It's entirely black. And it was the first movie with a black cast that was a hit overseas. Like, it was a hit in Asia, which is extremely unusual for movies with black cast. And it's never been repeated again. And nobody gives him credit for this. And then he got a bit bored. He was getting too rich. He was too successful. He was looking at Denzel Washington. He didn't want to be a comedian anymore. He wanted to be a serious dramatic actor. And things started to go downhill for mm. him. Like, then he was making Beverly Hills Cop 3, and he, he was refusing to make any jokes in it. And he just started getting get more and more closer. And people go, oh, well, he's a dick. But you know what? The thing is... He was so successful at the age of 19. He was doing stand-up in like, clubs in Jersey in 17. 19, he's in uh, Saturday Night Live and making 48 Hours. 21, he's trading places. Like, imagine going that fast. I kind of feel like, look, the guy wasn't killing kids. The guy wasn't taking drugs. He's never taken drugs. If he wants to react by cloistering himself up in Beverly Hills mm. and making kind of weird, dumb kiddie franchise films, fine. Like of all the things famous rich people have done, that seems pretty low down on the bad meter to me. Uh, But even still now, he just doesn't get any credit when he does good movies like Bowfinger, which all of you must see, which is amazing, which he's in with Steve Martin. And he plays two characters in it. He isn't wearing a costume with those two characters, and yet he's such a good actor. You know which one of those two characters he is as soon as he comes on screen. Like, he can do that. But he's just never gotten credit because he doesn't really play the Hollywood game. He doesn't care about any of those people. He's not friends with any of those people. He just lives his own life and makes these, you know fat dumb professor movies and makes hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars so fair play to the guy i Mm. think he's doing all right
1: yeah no i'm not worried about his career but i'm not enjoying his career any longer no i know but i still i mean i don't care
2: i mean when i look at his 80s movies particularly trading places and coming to america and beverly hills cop which are my three favorites of his i mean i just think he he could do anything he could make the worst film on the planet and I'd still love him because for those three movies alone like no one in my opinion has had more charisma on screen than Eddie Murphy
1: not even Steve Gutenberg <laughs> <laughs>
2: so and I was when I was a kid in the 80s my two favorite actors were the classics of the 80s Steve Gutenberg and Rick Moranis, and I knew that they were going to have careers that would last forever. <laughs> that has not proven to be the case. Um, I did get to interview Rick Moranis for the book, though, which was th- incredibly yeah. thrilling. Steve Gutenberg would not talk to me, which was very heartbreaking for those of us who still have all the police academies on DVD, <laughs> including number seven, Mission to Moscow, which <laughs> which no one good is in. But um, no, I have to say, even, even Steve Gutenberg is beaten by Eddie Murphy.
1: <laughs> No, Steve Gutenberg is beaten by most everyone. <laughs> I just wanted to expose you to these people.
2: <laughs> you know, Steve Gutenberg was interviewed on the radio about 3 years ago here because he was doing panto somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and um the guy the, this is not a lie. The DJ said to him why do you keep making these police... He said, I'm doing Police Academy 8, we're going to do Three Men and a Little Lady 3, and da, da 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 And the DJ said, why do you keep making these multiples, these franchises? He said, it's not like... Did anyone ask Shakespeare how, why he was making Henry the <laughs> Fourth? please let that
1: have been a joke.
0: It's just...
2: <laughs> In a similar vein, this is not about 80s movies. Actually, this is 90s movies now. But I had to go interview James Cameron a few years ago, three years ago or something, and um, and it was to promote some Blu-ray, you know, knockoff Titanic thing. So we were talking about Titanic, and thank God we weren't talking about Avatar. So we were talking about Titanic, and um, I said to him at the end, you know, he's known for having a terrible temper and he's like throwing kettles at people and stuff like that. And I said to him at the end, he'd been very nice, and I said, I'm sorry, I've got to ask you this, Mr. Cameron. Why couldn't Kate Winslet just share that damn board? I mean, exactly. it's a whole ballroom exactly. door. It's the whole ballroom door. She like, she look up she could just get Jack on the board. Of course. And he slammed his hand on the table and went, why not call up Shakespeare and ask why Romeo and Juliet had to die? <laughs> uh,
1: uh. I'm with you about the board.
2: Oh, my God. It's the biggest board and in
1: the she world. She had so much space. I remember saying at the time, excuse me, this room. It just, it's like, I'll remember you forever, Jack. It's better this way, believe me. I could carry on. We haven't even gone, James Spader. But I want—I would like—I would like that. I know James Spader. Uh, All
2: the women. Uh. uh,
1: But let's get—let's get some of the women asking some questions here, and some of the men. Let's get everyone involved. We've got about fifteen minutes for quick fire round audience questions. There's a question, there are two people here in the centre, a maroon, I'm sorry, it's red red and a white shirt. (laughs) So if we just pass the, oh, you can fight it out, but you're just (laughs) behind, one in front of the other.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's getting tough out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks very much. That was um, really entertaining. Um, You guys should do more uh, (laughs) double-teaming the second time around. That's great. Um, I just want to link maybe your two books together um, and some of the stuff you talked about the last time you heard about feminism Mm. and also what you talked about, the female-led movies in Mm. Hollywood and why we're not seeing them. I mean, Ghostbusters is very interesting because actually it's not as big a flop domestically as... Star Trek is. Yeah, 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 for sure. And yet no one's talking about the Star Trek movie being a flop. And everyone's talking about um, Ghostbusters being a flop. It was also approved by Amy Pascal before her emails were revealed to the world. Which brings me back then to women being in charge in Hollywood. And that being an essential precondition. Which then brings me around to the moves we've seen in Hollywood with some women looking for equal pay... You know, Meryl Streep becoming very vocal about m- movies need to be made for female audiences, yeah. and actually, some female actresses, when asked about it, saying, "I don't think we should discuss that issue."
2: I know. So, or
0: it's... refusing to even say they're feminists, exactly. which is always interesting. So, um, just kind of your thoughts on that in terms of some of Hollywood's own leading ladies seem to be their worst own worst enemies. Oh yeah, list. for sure.
2: I mean, there's a great, there's a funny divide now because feminism is for want of a better word, seen at the moment as kind of a bit trendy. Like, I'm not saying it's a fashion trend, but it's like a much cooler thing now to say you're a feminist than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So you get some actresses who are kind of jumping up and doing that. But uh, they're like kind of outliers, and also they generally are ones who are pretty safe, like Jennifer Lawrence. Like you know, Jennifer Lawrence isn't risking anything by saying she should get equal pay to Bradley Cooper or whatever you know, low life she's you know acting with. Um, but in the main, it's still seen as you know, basically saying I don't shave under my arms if you're a woman. Like I'm a feminist. Like I don't say that. Like the woman, what? Oh God, I can't remember her name. I'll, I'll remember in two seconds. The woman who's, who was in charge of you of um, Yahoo refusing to say that she's a feminist, that she doesn't really relate to feminism. Like, I, I don't understand how there are so many women out there who still don't understand it. Sarah Jessica Parker was quoted recently in an interview saying, no, I, I am not with feminism. I believe in equality. And you're like... You are like a 55-year-old woman living in Manhattan who made a TV show that is seen as like a feminist landmark. At no point you look up this word in the dictionary. Uh, I'm like, like, well, like, married like, to Ferris Bueller. I mean, but like, how do these people not understand that feminism is equality? It doesn't mean I hate men or whatever Andrea Leadsom thought it was during the whole Tory leadership uh. competition. Uh, I, like her, I, I'm fine with her not understanding it. Like I'm not expecting some sort of Tory MP woman who looks <laughs> like she just drinks G&Ts in Surrey all day to understand it. But, like, Sarah Jessica Parker, I mean, for God's sake, like, do you really not understand this? So, yes, but it also makes me sad. Like, you're right, there aren't enough women in Hollywood who are making these things, whereas in the 80s, there are women like Sherry Lansing in charge of studios. But at the same time, why? Why does a woman need to greenlight a movie for women? Women greenlight movies for men. Why are like, women yeah. seen as niche groups? And even if we were a niche group, why is it only us who can greenlight things? Why is it only a black studio head who will greenlight a black movie? Why is it only a disabled studio head who would greenlight a movie about a disabled person? Like, why does it have to be divided this way? We all have to give white men a pass why can't they think about someone other than them for once? That's what I don't understand. So when Judd Apatow or whatever said, oh, I don't write w- dialogue for women, I don't know them. It's like, you're married to one, you have daughters, you had a mother, you probably had sisters. You might have spoken to a woman today in the drugstore. Like, we're not foreign creatures. I mean, if, if they can write movies for talking dogs, like, like, is it beyond them to write one for a woman? Like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> that you had a question.
0: Yeah, well, I think it just follows on from that, actually, because um, we watched recently Frances Ha oh, yeah. with uh, Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. and just wonder how she fits in to the current sort of, you know, movie experience.
2: I, I'm glad US. I'm glad she exists. And these movies by Noah Baumbach are being made. I personally find them quite annoying, <laughs> but that's my own personal taste. I'm glad that this woman is being seen as someone who can open films. I don't really understand the whole. I mean, to me, it's a little close to that cliche trope, the manic pixie dream girl, which mm. a couple of you probably have heard of, where like this kind of ditzy fay girl wafts around and is kind of has no inner life but saves the men around her. It's a little close to that mm. for my liking and a little tweed. But look, I'm not going to split hairs. Like I'm glad, I'm glad these movies exist. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'd rather see someone who's like actual human being rather than a kind of cutesy, yeah.
1: cutesy thing. I saw a question. Well, there's a question here, and then we'll try to we'll get to. This is and the aerobic portion of the evening for <laughs> our venue people.
0: Hello, um, we all have characters than in movies, either actors or the characters in the films themselves who we say, that's me, mm. that's exactly me. Mm. Um, uh, reading you yesterday, I thought, gosh, it's Bridget Jones. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, is it? And, and uh, you know, I love that because it, it's, it's happened to me as well with uh, many actors, not just particular characters in films. Um, how much are you Bridget Jones?
1: am <laughs> <laughs> I
2: Bridget Jones? I'm not Bridget Jones at all. I, but I don't know, I could, I understand why people would, say that's because I wrote a column yesterday about why Bridget Jones's diary is one of my favorite books just to explain I'm definitely not Bridget Jones even though I was single until my late 30s and all the rest of it I'm not not Carrie Bradshaw I feel like this is something that women do much more than men like I'm so Carrie Bradshaw I'm so Lizzie Bennett. I'm so I've never felt that way about a character I don't want to be a character I feel like that's no, I'd rather just... I just want to watch them and be myself, to be honest. I don't want to be copying someone else. I'm, I wouldn't be able to enjoy Bridget Jones so much if I was Bridget Jones.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's the... There we go. So
0: they say we get the government we deserve. Yeah. Oh. Do you think we get the films we deserve? So would studios be able to make films if there was more demand for more interesting, varied films that showed people in more real life I mean they say that
2: but you know I went to see bridesmaids and so did every single other person I know yeah, and I'm I not seeing like s- it. I thought I thought I liked it until the end I thought a oh, cop-out ending like typical cop-out romantic ending and boring mm. but I don't see loads of other amazing female ensemble comedies being made um, I I don't go see, you know, endless X-Men movies and Avengers movies and stuff. They keep getting made. I mean, it would require a mass change. Teenage boys are always going to want to see superhero movies. I mean, the man I live with goes to see all these stupid superhero movies, despite my grumbling. Uh, I mean, I fully accept there's a market for them. I liked the Superman movies in the '80s. I thought they were adorable, Christopher Reeve, but no matter what we do no matter how many times i like promote these amazing films i've seen recently like appropriate behavior which was this independent film made by desiree akavan who's this iranian american woman it's such a funny comedy all of you should download it and watch it it's so good obvious child by jenny slate and i promote them in the in the newspaper i interview all of them Mm. i don't see any more of those movies getting made so i mean it's really the hollywood that makes it i don't really see that audience the audience has that much power
1: No. Okay, there's a question right here in the front and then there's a gentleman over there. And there's a nice young lady over there. Oh, and then somebody... Okay. Hi there. Um, Do you think that
0: the death of kind of sophisticated American comedy in movies is to do with the rise of improv?
2: The rise of improv? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's just that studios were having lower and lower expectations of audiences, to be honest. I mean, look at... I mean, so you take the smartest screenwriters in my opinion, would be Nora Ephron and Woody Allen. Like, to me, it became a series of diminishing returns in their movies, to be honest, from the 80s onwards. Like, Woody Allen's movies are nowhere near as smart as they were in the 80s when you have things like Purple Rose of Cairo, Broadway Denny Rose, Radio Days. Like, they're just not. Everyone goes, oh, Vicky Cristina, Barcelona. You're just kind of grateful that you don't want to kill yourself at the end of it, to be honest. You're like, <laughs> you're like grateful it's not an actual like pedophile movie. It's like, oh, great, it's fine. We'll, we'll accept this. And Nora Ephron. I mean, I love Nora Ephron. I would die, die for her if I could. But you know, when Harry met Sally, then it can kind of Sleepless in Seattle is okay, a bit stocky, slightly strange. And then you've got mail, which was just like <laughs> this weird pay on to email. I mean, I feel studios gave them less and less room to be smart mm. in a lot of ways. Um, some improv stuff can be terrific. I mean, a lot of Ghostbusters, there's a lot of improv in Ghostbusters, the original one. I think it's just, it, movies just ne- were more and more reliant on overseas audiences. So there's just less smart, smart writing.
1: Oh, somebody over there, yeah. Yeah, it's um, Ferris Bullard, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bang on. Um, it just occurs to me that it's a bit like conversation about supermarkets, isn't it, really? Mm. That if we want decent food, we want the corner shop to stick around, you better stop shopping in the supermarkets often. Uh, or Lee, or just go to the
2: corner shops. You, know, no, you, don't, you don't need to give up the supermarkets. No, go to the corner shops. And the
1: corner shop is possibly Mubi, which I think Lee's mentioned more than once. If you don't know about Mubi, then look it up, because
0: fantastically curated independent movies that mm. blow you away because they're full of dialogue and emotion. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm sorry to mention emotion because I'm a bloke, but I, <laughs> I, I got that pass there.
2: <laughs> no exactly I'm not telling everyone to stop That's seeing true. superhero movies if you want to see them I don't get why but fine but you know look out for the other ones there are really great ones around you know watch mm. them on Netflix a lot of them go onto Netflix watch them at the independent cinemas this is Edinburgh there are loads of great independent cinemas it's not just the yeah. Odeons and stuff yeah. like go go to them and give them money it's the only way they get more made
1: yeah.
0: Thank you for coming to me. Um, So I'm thinking about the new uh, Ghostbusters movie and then I hear they're remaking Splash with Channing Tatum in the mermaid role. Um, (laughs) So my question is about how you feel about some of these kind of sacred movies being remade, which seems like a terrible thing, but then with women in the um, lead roles, which sounds like a good thing. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, with the Ghostbusters, I mean, I've, I interviewed Paul Feig in this book, who directed the Ghost, the women, the all-female Ghostbusters, and I was super excited about it because I love Ghostbusters. Ferris and Ghostbusters are my two favorite movies, and I like the women in it. And I, I, I was genuinely moved when I saw the movie, and I saw the four women in their Ghostbuster outfits in the boiler suits. Like, I was genuinely moved. Fact is, that the movie's just not as good. Like, it's not as good, and it's not going to be as good. And I don't under. I mean. I do understand why they do these remakes, because it's got name recognition. You know, you don't need to set up the story. Everyone knows what the Ghostbuster story is, and most people can figure out what the Splash story is. It's a laziness. And in terms of the gender reversal in Splash, I mean, how many of you have seen the original Splash? Has anyone here? Oh, quite a few, okay. So you know that this is like one of the world's dumbest films. Like, yeah. like they're next gonna remake Mannequin at this rate. I mean, like, no, <laughs> like no, no, so... No dumb. It's unbelievable they're remaking this. I mean, I wouldn't exactly call Channing Tatum being a merman, like, feminist triumph. I don't, think, I don't think Andrea Dworkin is cheering in her grave about this. So, I mean, I'd rather they just wrote good movies for women. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks' role in the original Splash is pretty stupid. He's like this guy who's so stupid, he hasn't realized this woman it's is a, a mermaid yeah. who he falls in love with. Like, and then she's there in the bathtub with her enormous fin. Like, it's it's so dumb. Um, it's basically the I mean, it's the Little Mermaid, is what it is. Mm. Um, so no, I couldn't care less about it. I'm, and don't you see, whenever you hear about these movies, you just want to watch the originals, don't you? I mean, it's, everyone goes, oh, Ghostbusters. Suddenly, everybody wanted to watch the original Ghostbusters. You know, I hear Splash. I haven't seen Splash. Well, since I wrote the book, so like about four, three years ago. But I haven't seen it since you know, 1987. Before yeah. then. I mean, I had, had no craving for it. So if this, no. if this brings people back to the originals, great. But I'd rather people just spent the energy on writing movies with good female roles.
1: Yeah, I don't see that happening, though. No, no,
2: not anytime soon.
1: Has anyone got a really quick final... Oh, right here in the front row, there's a quick final question. Don't you think a lot of the best writers and women for women's roles are in TV now? Yeah, well, that's the like thing. Like Gilmore Girls yeah. or
0: Transparent, and that's where the energy and the but, but that's
2: kind is. of sad. I mean, I it talked is. to Jill yeah. Soloway in the book too, in the end, because she she wrote Transparent, which is such an incredible TV show. It's on Amazon Prime. All of you should watch it. They're making the third series now, about why they've moved to TV, and it's because TV now, particularly. Amazon, Netflix, HBO, um, which are all subscriber services, so they're not free and they're not accessible to most people, um, give uh, writers and directors the freedom that uh, the Hollywood big studios gave them in the 80s. And on the one hand, you kind of go, okay, well, that's okay. It's okay, it's just moved to another medium. But on the other hand, I think it's not okay because these are limited areas. It's not like you can just pop down the street to go see Dirty Dancing at your cinema like you could as a teenager in the 80s. Like, you, your parents have to pay for these services. It's accessible mainly to upper middle class kids. I mean, that's not really great, I don't think. That's not free for all, so what's the point? Like, what's the point of a mass culture that's for a very limited self-selected subset? That's a downer to end on, isn't it? <laughs>
1: James Spader. James Spader. <laughs> James Spader. I'm going to uh, take Hadley over to the signing area and hand her a pen and a glass of water and get her <laughs> in position behind a giant stack of books, which <laughs> I encourage you all to come and buy. But first, can we just thank her for today? <laughs>